Welcome to To Your Bible, custom designed to your Bible reading plan and weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resonate Church. And I'm here with Sarah Pasquale, our executive director. Hey, everybody. And we are in week 45 uh, Ooh, with Esther, uh, start of Zechariah, and some more of Revelation. And so uh, let's pick up kind of on the what really is the second half of the Esther story. And um, Esther has a second feast and once again invites Haman, who probably really has no reason to be at the feast other than maybe Esther's uh, plotting uh, and the king. And uh, es- the king offers a request again of anything that Esther could possibly do. And suddenly she begins with like, my life is being threatened. Um, and maybe the king doesn't hear anything else from that point on. She starts with uh, the idea um, of her life before she talks about the, her people's lives. And uh, the king is interested in who threatened and it's Haman sitting right next to him. And so um it's possible that even her announcement of being a Jew was kind of drowned out at the drama as if Esther had set up this kind of perfect moment to reveal something that could be um, a threat to her, maybe even to her life, um, but uh, has distracted the king uh, with the threat of Haman instead. And so she's just flipped the script here um, and made Haman seem like the the sort of tribal anti-Persian um, progression uh, kind of individual. And uh, and the jealousy for the king gets redirected in that direction. And um, as if to say, Haman is trying to take away your bride uh, by killing her. And so, um, and if you're following along, the second feast should be kind of a signal to you. Sometimes, um, I can't remember if we pointed it out earlier, but um, you should notice patterns in this book. And the back-end patterns will be, in some ways, basically reversals of the front-end patterns. Um, like a chiasm, but a little distinct from that um, in the way the story is structured. This is really fantastic storytelling because we just saw all of this foreshadowed before when Haman's friends and family told Haman, like, hey, if you're coming against uh, the God of the Jews, it might not turn out well for you. And then we see the tables turn and the guy who is in the power is the guy who now is going to be in submission. And to keep the suspense going, you have actually this unique moment. This king has kind of acted impulsively up to this point, but then he decides to go outside and think it over. Um, So Haman's left alone with uh, Esther. uh, And at some point, uh, basically it looks like Haman tries to, what the Greek word or the Hebrew word is conquer her, implying both her and her kingdom. Maybe she's trying to kill her or do something else. And uh, the king catches them. Uh, And then uh, the king, the word slipped out. So now we have the impulsive king showing up again. uh, And he decides to kill Haman right away. Um, And a fascinating reversal. Haman gets dragged dragged outdoors, drug outdoors, um, and uh, sort of the whatever the devices, the, the wood that's set up to kill Mordecai um, ends up being killed. Uh, Haman gets killed on. It's a pretty satisfying plot twist, I'd say, for all of the readers of the story. The bad guy, it kind of gets what's coming to him. Yeah, Mordecai gets elevated uh, to basically Haman's position. Um, he gets the ring of authority of the king, gets uh, a lot more power. And in order to sort of reverse the decree that had been out there, Mordecai comes up in some ways with a counter decree that the Jews can defend themselves and put to death anyone attempting to basically genocide them. Um, and this certainly would include Haman's household, which we will see. And there's much celebration, actually, it seems like amongst the nation. So it didn't seem like everybody in Persia was ready to kill the Jews. Um, there were plenty of people that were celebrating. Um, and even some people who started claiming <laughs> to be Jews in order to not get caught up in sort of the the killing of Haman and his followers. I think we see the work of God here done in such a way that 
the people and the readers can really see God's hand at work. God pre- could have prevented any of this from happening, Haman becoming enemies with Mordecai or or so on. But instead, God allows it or permits it to get to a point of desperation so that the people will see his hand at work. And not just the Jews, but also the people in Persia. So we need to see also how our own desperate circumstances around sin or even brokenness in the world uh, can point us to the way God is working in a way that we may not have noticed or observed had things remained easy or comfortable. Yeah, I mean, the, the the most famous phrase out of this whole book for Esther is that for such a time as this, and um, whatever those circumstances are, and those are hardly the circumstances she wanted out of her life, uh, and yet for that moment, uh, she she now has this moment to be obedient, um, even, even in circumstances that she would not have written for herself. And so uh, the Jews end up destroying their enemy, killing Haman's family, uh, as well as everybody else plotting the genocide of themselves. Um, and uh, and so, uh, and then the Feast of Purim ends up being inaugurated. You end up with this two-day feast that's still celebrated, certainly to this day, in late February, early March. Um, and in some ways, it's really to remember that even in God's silence, he's still working on behalf. The, the, the term Purim actually is named after dice. It's the word that for the dice that Haman used earlier in the story. And so um, this something so simple as rolling the dice is not outside the scope of God's sovereign work. And it's this reminder like God is still working even when we don't hear from him. Yeah, it's a feast for people to remember for all time uh, that God delivered them from certain death. Yep. Uh, and Mordecai becomes the king's second in command. He gets elevated really to that role. Mm-hmm. Like Joseph. Yeah. And so I, I think the Joseph connection is pretty thick. And sort of my final final thoughts on this book, the sort of telling of the Joseph story, um, I think part of part of the storytelling of that story um, likely became common amongst the, the Israelites while they were in Egypt. And um, probably a reminder that when God was absent, when they're under the, the sort of boot of Egypt, like he was still working, just like in Joseph's story, God was still working, even though God doesn't seem very much like a player in the storyline. And I think the same is true here, despite exile despite even the moral ambiguity of the characters. God's not totally absent, even though it seems like he is. And they're encouraged to trust God's providence, even when they don't see it. No matter how bad things may get, that God is committed to redeeming his world. Yeah. I really enjoyed the uniqueness of the book in that we do see the hand of God throughout all of it, even though his name isn't mentioned. It's such a good reminder for us because it helps us to try to observe on our own or to be attuned to the way that God's hand is at work in our lives, even if we don't directly see it or we don't hear his name mentioned. Um, Remember that even when things seem like it's in control of the godless and God is nowhere to be found, God is at work and he will triumph over the enemy. And then we move on to the book of Zechariah. Uh, once again, uh, he's someone that's mentioned as a contemporary to Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, likely is at the same time of Haggai. They probably even knew each other. Um, and Zechariah, we don't know a ton about. Um, he definitely has some language and a focus on the temple that maybe uh, some people think he might be a priest in addition to a prophet. Um, but um, he writes in a very, uh, what we'll, uh, we've talked about before, the sort of apocryphal way. It's very vision heavy. Um, and, and he's talking to people who are working hard to sort of rebuild the glory of, in some ways, their, their old days, um, yet sitting under the control of another government. Um, and I think Zechariah offers, once again, this idea of, of endurance and perseverance and that, that God's agenda triumphs in the end. Have hope, persevere. There is a new kingdom, a new reality, a new ruler that's on their way, but we're not quite there yet. And um, 
And I love, there's various um, connections to Revelation, man walking through trees, there's horns and, that are sounded to scatter Israel, there's a measuring line, there's there's clean garments of the high priest, there's various scrolls throughout the book, there's um, women, there's a woman in a basket as opposed to a woman on a beast, and there's four horses drawing chariots, there's all these images that, uh, as we've been reading Revelation, certainly get picked up. Yeah, we see in this book that the future of God's messianic kingdom is only going to come when God's people are faithful to the covenant, which obviously connects us directly to this Messiah, the one who is faithful to the covenant. So Zechariah is one of the most quoted books in the New Testament, and it takes us really straight into Jesus's death. And so there's a lot of messianic themes in this book, which is kind of fun to follow. Yeah. And so uh, it starts also with a reminder uh, that exile happened because of Israel's rebellion, that God had sent prophets. They didn't listen to them. Eventually there were prophets that some people listened to and they repented, they turned. And we have a remnant because some people did listen to the prophets in turn, um, which is a pretty good way to start the book if you're a prophet. So it's like, so Israel has a history sometimes of listening to the prophets and then sometimes ignoring them. And I'm here to give you a word. So it's probably helpful to listen to me. Yeah. Zechariah starts by pointing out these two generations. The first is the fathers, the father's generation before the exile. They heard God's word, but they hardened their hearts and they suffered under God's judgment. And Zechariah is coming back and saying, hey, you're a new generation and you can respond to God's call. You can repent. You can anticipate God's returning to you. It's this already this beginning of hope and repentance, which are themes that we'll see throughout the book. And then we get uh, the first of what will be eight sort of night visions throughout this book. Um, and it starts with uh, this idea of these horsemen. Uh, there's four of them, which also represent sort of often cardinal directions in Scripture. We talked about that in Ezekiel. Um, they report back that the earth is kind of at peace. They go throughout the earth and come back and report to God that things are not crazy. Israel's not rebelling against me right now. Um, they're, they're not finding any major superpower destroying Israel uh, at this time. And so it feels like 70, the 70 years of, of punishment the 70 years of Israel being uh, cleansed in some ways, the land being cleansed and given, being given peace uh, has all sort of reached this culmination. Um, and, and so God seems ready for Israel to return to Jerusalem to rebuild. Yeah, it's a good reminder that these some of these people endured, you know, 70 plus years of not having any sort of peace. And now there's finally peace coming to Israel through Persia. Um, and so it's a good perspective to have, which is a common theme of what we're reading near the end of this scripture or near the end of the two year Bible is so much of like hoping and enduring and remembering that where you are right now is not where you will always be. It's not the end of the story. Yeah. And then we're given a second eye vision, this picture of horns and craftsmen, um, and horns often represent positions of power or nations themselves. And so, um, there's various options for this. It's no reason to get into a larger discussion on it, but, um, but it is representative of those who have attacked Judah and Israel in the past, caused them uh, to be scattered and, and that God uh, ultimately will bring some form of craftsman um, as a form of judgment on these on these people that have attacked Judah and Israel. And so um, whether that's craftsmen and they're stonemasons, they're people that are building the temple, and ultimately the temple is a picture of their destruction, or whether it was by another means uh, in history, some form of other powers that have come in to destroy them, um, there's various thoughts on that. We are reminded in the section that those who bless Israel will be blessed and those who harm Israel will be punished. And that can take us back even to Genesis 12 and the Abrahamic covenant. God remains the same and he fulfills his word. And then we get a third vision, uh, and it's a picture uh, of somebody uh, with a measuring line, and ultimately they find out the size of God's sort of restored city is unlimited. There's there's sort of an endlessness to it, um, and and that's good news. This is a bunch of people that are returning to the rubble of a city, just trying to rebuild the city. And the picture that Zechariah is helping to give these people is that look, 
we will restore this. And we will restore this in such a way that there's no end to it. Assuring the people that God's glory will be there and that God will protect them like he did in the past and um, that God's coming to dwell with them again. And so we get this idea of dwelling, which, as we have pointed out, John certainly picks up on a lot of Zechariah in the book of Revelation, but even his start of his gospel is a reminder that God came to dwell in Jesus and he will return once again um, in in Revelation to finally dwell with his people. And at that point, and this is where Zechariah really leads, many people will come uh, to be known as the Lord's people, uh, both from the first advent and in the final celebration. We will see that um, happen. We, we now see the engrafting of all the Gentiles, all the, the various nations, and at the end we will see people from every tribe worshiping at the throne. Yeah, I love this picture of Jerusalem being a city without walls because it's protected and inhabited by God himself. And not just the Jews, but all nations will come and worship him there. This is from the beginning of creation that we've seen this uh, desire and this goal and this work of God to bring all people and to worship him. So Zechariah is pointing us forward to remember that this is the fruit of God's work. Uh, let's jump to Revelation. We see uh, an angel and a little scroll. I always love those great little titles that are thrown in there. Um, and, and right from the get-go, we're taken back to the book of Ezekiel. There's a messenger in the clouds with legs like fire, a face like the sun, and there's a rainbow, all straight from Ezekiel 1, 27 through 28. Um, and, but there are also images that exist prior to that. And so um, you have images like uh, the rainbow, certainly connected to Noah. You have um, sort of pillar of fire connected to their time in the desert wandering. And so um, with all this apocalyptic to talk that seems sensational of seals and trumpets and earthquakes and destruction. Yet to Israelites, the idea of a flood and and um, and being in the desert or experiencing even the destruction of the Egyptian armies, those messages of the rainbow and those messages of the fire, like our protection in the midst of the chaos. Um, so John is speaking to the fears of people, reminding them what God has promised to their ancestors before. Uh, and then John's instructed to eat the scroll, which once again is a straight up uh, connection to Ezekiel 3. Um, and, and a reminder, John's not saying brand new things. This isn't like, well, John has all this weird stuff. It's kind of weird, but it's all stuff that has been said before. Uh, and you can almost hear John communicating his intent in his call because he inserts the Greek word uh, palin, um, uh, this quote, uh, when he quotes Ezekiel, the, the word for again, so prophesy. That's what would have just existed in Ezekiel, but, but now John says, and prophesy again, prophesy anew, almost like God saying to, to John, these people need encouragement. They need a reminder, like this is a hard calling and my words are sweet to the taste, but they're they're sometimes hard to hear and digest. And 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 John, you need to go and tell them, John, like, tell them that I haven't forgotten them. Tell them that I'm fighting to persevere and, and that they're worth it. Tell them to overcome, uh, that run the race that's marked out for them which will come up pretty much almost every section of this whole book. So as we're kind of following this uh, storyline might be too strong of a phrase, but as we're following this. Remember that in chapter five, we saw Jesus take this scroll from the father. He opened it and we kind of saw what happened in chapters six through eight. And then in chapters 10, this angel brings it to John and he eats it in verses 10 through 11 or verses 8 through 11. And so we're seeing this sort of interlude of God delaying inflicting full and final wrath on the people at this point because of his patience. And then John is instructed to rise up and measure the temple, uh, also a phrase out of Ezekiel 40 to 42. Um, and uh, and then there's uh, this talk of two witnesses. Now, uh, we kind of mentioned this a little bit in the Transfiguration story, but the idea of two witnesses was not a, a new um, idea, even at the Transfiguration story. Um, there's the idea that Moses and Elijah are the two great major witnesses in sort of Jewish thought, representing the law and the prophets. They're sort mm-hmm. of the figureheads of those two things. Um, and even, even in the text, even in chapter 11, 
11 itself. It says they have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall in the days that are prophesying. Once again, that sounds a whole lot like Elijah. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth of every kind of plague as often as they desire, which sounds a whole lot like Moses. And, and so you have these these two witnesses, but also you, you start moving in the language of olive trees and lampstands. There's sort of this <clears throat> plural idea of these two items that are connected to the two witnesses. And both of those represent sort of God's community. And John's constantly working with these sort of double numbers all over the place and 24 elders as opposed to 12, things like that. So I think God is speaking of, of the whole of God's people, both the Jews and the Gentiles, that their testimony lived out as this single unified people would be this as powerful as the testimony of Moses and Elijah. And this reminder that things are hard and sometimes like what you're experiencing is difficult. And, and he reminds them that, that, but this time, the suffering is only three and a half days, which is half of seven. It's, it's half of the full time as if to say, look, this is a significant amount of time, but it's not forever. There is a true end to it. It's not, it's not a fullness of time. It's only a temporary time. Um, and that there's a resurrection at the end of this, that you will uh, get connected to God, which once again, I think is a reference to Elijah in there as well. Yeah, so John here talks about this vision of the temple and these two witnesses, and the goal of it is to reassure believers of God's protection, though physical suffering will still occur. And I think the heart of this is for us to remember that God is present among his church, and it and he is accomplishing a work in and through his church that is good and will triumph, even if things are difficult for a season. And then we get the seventh trumpet. Uh, like I mentioned before, this could be an allusion to the Olympic Games, but um, there's this constant idea that there's two kingdoms locked in sort of this struggle and competition and the question is who's ultimately going to win and John's sort of pointing to the kingdom of God and that that he's reminding them and and remember um, if we go back to to some things we talked about with John the Baptist very much in the Jewish mindset as soon as the Messiah came everything was going to return to peace and restored in its fullness and everything will be um, not not like these people are experiencing. And, and so I think John's helping to paint the picture of going, look, there are two kingdoms that are existing right now. And there's the kingdom of Satan and maybe that's Rome. Maybe that's all sorts of various forms of evil. And there's the kingdom of God. And and there is a spiritual battle happening right now. And he will encourage his people to, to in a pastoral way to persevere, to stand firm and point to by the end of this book, sort of the ultimate victory at the end. Yeah, it, it is a good reminder with these trumpet blasts, <clears throat> Olympic Games, and also throughout Scripture we see it representing things like the Day of Atonement and the Year of Jubilee or a new Exodus. And so there will be a day of culmination. Everything that we're hoping for, we will see fulfilled. And then we hear about the woman and the dragon. Uh, there's certainly a lot of opinion about who this woman would be. Maybe it's Eve, maybe it's Mary, maybe it's the church or something else. And so, um, and and I tend to lean a little bit towards Eve only because we get from Genesis 3 and there's some Genesis overlay uh, even in the text, but this idea that the, the woman's seed will defeat the serpent, that the, the serpent will constantly go after the lineage of Eve. And as we've noted before, even the idea of a, of a dragon, of a Leviathan or serpent are often indicative, not just of evil or Satan itself, but also sort of the nations and empires that represent evil um, or counter to God. So working against its people. And we've seen this entire, we've seen this in Babylon and things like that. Um, and I don't think Rome is any different. But once again, John uses a sort of halftime phrase around 1,260 to, to say, but this, this battle, this suffering is not, it's not forever. It's not a full time. There's, there's an end to this time for you. 
I think this section is a good reminder to us that part of the story that John is telling is he's telling this sort of ancient story of how this battle between good and evil and the enemy trying to steal and kill and destroy and God delivering has been happening as long as sin has been in the world. We see it with, sure, with Eve, with Mary. It can be the church. It can be all of these things. And I think the point here, again, is to emphasize that God's hand remains steadfast in protecting his people who he has set apart for his purposes. So, and as I've played by cars, I certainly think Rome is uh, in some ways personified as, as Satan and evil here, or like the, the, the kingdom that's representing um, Satan in the storyline. And um, we, we get allusions all over this closing section of this great battle between the serpent and the offspring. And um, we even see phrases that uh, she's taken on eagle wings to the desert, which uh, once again, uh, the eagle's wings in the desert is straight from uh, the song of Moses. Um, and the dragon tries to bring judgment, tries to bring some kind of, um, judgments in the world by flooding, um, yet doesn't get the victory from it all. Um, and as the dragon continues to try to make a word against the offspring, one, one can help, I think, to remember back to Genesis 3 and the declaration um, that we know how the story is going to end. Um, and I think the message is clear to these people that we are in a great spiritual battle. We must stand our ground, continue to walk in righteousness. We've been here before. We know how the story ends. Let's persevere. Let's overcome. Yeah. Satan's time is short. Because of Christ, he will be thrown down and defeated. And we, because we've been purchased by Christ's blood, will overcome by Christ's blood and the testimony of faithfulness to God in the midst of suffering and struggle. Yeah. And uh, we hear about the first beast. And by the way, um, this is once again, cultural context that just helps, I think, not jump to weird conclusions. Um, Domitian's uh, the, the emperor at this about this time. The largest building project he has is uh, at this gymnasium in Ephesus, which is built outside the city center. Um, if you were to sit downtown, you would look out on the harbor and see the building arise. It was one of the fastest building projects completed. Um, and people refer to it as the beast rising out of the sea. And even Pliny, I mentioned this before, refers to Domitian as the beast of the sea. And so um, this idea, this sort of connection to the beast, that they probably would have understood the symbolism pretty quickly. And even the horns, as they sort of represent all these... Um, Maybe these, these rulers of, of Rome. Uh, there's even two different stories in Israel's history, both of Nero and of Vespian, um, around this wounded head that ends up getting healed. And so um, this this creature is very much uh, carries all the hallmarks of a connection to Rome. And again, I think the purpose of John is, is clear in sort of this context then. He pulls no punches to say, look, look, this, this life under Domitian is really, really hard. He's not naive to that. And um, he's encouraging to people who are giving their lives to follow God. I mean, they're suffering. They are likely going to get killed or get persecuted more and he encourages them to continue to stand firm and hold fast that this that there's something going on behind the curtain there's a so much greater of a cosmic battle of good versus evil and jesus is the victor of this battle and and so stand firm even when it doesn't look like victory is happening this can be difficult for us in our modern American context to wrap our mind around because it is not that difficult to be a Christian where we are and where we live. It doesn't mean there aren't challenges, but we're not, we're not suffering to the extent that these early Christians or even Christians in modern day on other parts of the world are suffering. But it's one of those essential understandings for us to have as believers that it is difficult to be a Christian. And we are encouraged and reminded through God's word and pretty much every book of the Bible to endure and hold fast to what we believe. But we should anticipate that it will be difficult. Yeah, and then Psalm 82. Uh, well, like we read in Esther, the acknowledgement of sovereign's 
of God's sovereign judgment is clear here. His heart is for the afflicted and the destitute, um, and the author is crying out for intervention, and he's advocating for the marginalized, just as we saw happen in Esther. Yeah. It's one of the random texts that Jesus uses uh, when people are mad about him using the term God, and um, he's like, look, we've, we've used the term gods before around people and rulers, and so, um, but uh, it's Asaph here sort of calling out the wicked rulers and authorities, sort of their treatment of the margins and desiring justice, asking God to, to enact justice right now. Next week. So in Zechariah, we, you know, you jump back and forth a lot of New Testament and Old Testament and what we're reading in his vision. So I'd encourage you just to dive a little bit into some of those Old Testament visions and read up on them a little bit, the lampstand, the high priest and what the high priest does and everything. And it'll help clarify what Zechariah is kind of bridging here between Old Testament and New Testament. And then in the New Testament and Revelation, just consider the role that false teaching plays in what you're reading next week. How is that something uh, even for us in modern day to be aware of and cautious about? Yeah. And so uh, as you're reading, um, there's a little bit of me just wanting to encourage you to step into their context and to a people that are setting off to, to rebuild this temple. And they've had prophets throughout their time in Babylon. They've always had that group of people. And now they're back, they're rebuilding the temple and there's priests just starting their sacrificial system back up and running and feels like things are finally getting off the ground. And, and imagine Zechariah coming along and, and implying that there's this branch, this royalty there's one going to come and what kind of hope that might instill in the, these listeners that, that yes, we've had prophets. Yes, we have priests, but, but is there going to be a King again? And Zechariah kind of pointing to the future and then new Testament, as we continue to read, I, I hope you feel the drama of that, whether we think in terms of Olympic games and there's this great competition, whether it's this apocalyptic showdown between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of Satan, that, that there's a clash that's taking place. And I think John is, is through his, his book is painting that picture and, hopefully I've helped you draw out of reading it as some sort of future puzzle, but, but that we feel the greatness and the power of the drama unfolding as you continue to read about this sort of um, great clash uh, of, of the kingdoms in some ways. So thanks y'all. Thank you guys. Thank you guys.